Um, let me start this session uh, with this. I have here a, a letter from a, a sister in our church that has never been opened. And it says, to the staff, personal, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. I received this um, a number of years ago um, into our office. It came in the mail, and there was a manila envelope. And I open up the envelope, and this was in it, and it was sealed. But then there was also a letter telling me what was in this. And the letter said, inside this envelope is me telling you that I am leaving my husband, and I am leaving the church. Uh, and all of that is explained in this, this letter. Well, I looked at the letter and I started to open it and I just thought to myself, I really don't want to read this letter. So I called this gal and um, I just said to her, I said, listen, I'll be honest with you, I don't want to read this letter, um, but um, I... I will read it under one condition. And she said, what's that? I said, if, if you would be willing to meet with me three or four times with a sister in the church of your choosing and do a 360 with me around the cross, then when we're done, you can do what you please and I'll read your letter. And she said, it's that simple? I said, it's that simple. She said, I can do whatever I want after that and I said you can do whatever you want sucker that she was uh, she uh, agreed to the meeting she picked a sister in the Lord and we met and we just uh, took time to just do a 360 around the cross and uh, and she was so melted down by the first thought about Christ who's inside her circle of pain she was hurting so much in her marriage and in some of the relationships uh, and uh, so she wept and she sobbed through that and she saw the magnitude of her sin, the magnitude of God's grace and the true nature of forgiveness. And a few weeks later, we, we were done. And I said, so we're done. And she said, that's it. I said, that's it. She said, I can do whatever I want now, right? And I said, yeah. I said, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to stay with my husband and I'm going to stay here at Cornerstone. Uh, that was several years ago, and uh, she's still a member of our church, and I still have not read this letter, praise God. <laughs> so. I don't share that to say I'm some brilliant counselor. Like I said last night, it's just I've become more of a one-tool counselor anymore. It's just, man, if I can just... If I can just uh, get people to the foot of the cross, if I can just bring people to the gospel, that's the power of God that generates movement in people's lives, moving them into the realm of salvation and then once inside, taking them deeper and deeper into all things uh, salvation. So hopefully, you know, what we're going through here, it's a, it's a help to you in your own walk with the Lord and relationships with others, but also uh, use this as a tool as you're, uh, you're helping other people. Uh, let's see, where did we uh, leave off? What page? 18. All right, we're talking about the choice to forgive um, 
and we should forgive in the context of prayer. We should choose to forgive in a way that is shaped by God's forgiveness of us. We should also choose to forgive others as a means of shaping our own experience of God's forgiveness of us. Um, But letter D, we should choose to forgive with specificity. Again, I'm really being an advocate against fuzziness when it comes to uh, forgiveness. Jesus says in Luke 11:4, "We ourselves also are forgiving everyone who is indebted to us." That's specific language. He says, "We ourselves." So it's like I myself do this. I'm the one who was sinned against. I myself am granting forgiveness. He says, "We ourselves also are forgiving everyone." So we know who it is that has sinned against us, and it's everyone. If one person's left out, then it's not everyone. Uh, so we're thinking about everyone that has sinned against us or who is indebted to us. And so we know uh, who it is that's indebted to us. We know what the debt is. We know how much they owe us, in a sense. And we are forgiving them specifically. And he says, we are forgiving. We are forgiving. That's present tense. We're doing this now as opposed to later. Lord, in your presence, we're doing this now as opposed to putting it off till tomorrow or next week or next year. And we're also forgiving them as opposed to anything else we might do. Instead, we're forgiving them rather than holding a grudge, rather than ignoring them, rather than saying, well, their sin's okay. Forgiveness is not saying what that person did is okay. Forgiveness is saying what that person did was a sin. And sin is serious. I'm going to call it what it is. It's a sin, but I forgive that sin. Also, Jesus uh, in Luke says, when you pray, say. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but I would just encourage you, when you forgive somebody in the context of prayer, say it. Don't just think it. Either way is fine, but for me, it helps me to vocalize my forgiveness in the presence of God Man, when you're forgiving someone before the throne of God out loud, it just adds an element of accountability. And so summing it up, um, here's kind of the way that I'd recommend that you do this. Here's what I do. Number one, state the offense and the offender to God. Someone's wronged you. You're in prayer. State the offense and the offender and use their full name. Use their middle name if you know it. Be very specific Uh, express the hurt and the damage that the offense has caused you. Be honest about that. Cast that burden on the Lord, that anxiety on the Lord. Lord, here's what they did and here's how it made me feel. Here's the damage that it has done, the hurt that what they have done has caused. And then number three, confess the debt that they owe to you. Just name that. Uh, and, and the justice that you would love to visit upon them. Go ahead and tell the Lord, Lord, here's what I want to do in my flesh, the sense of justice inside of me. Here's the consequences I would love to visit upon this person right now. Go ahead and say that in the presence of the Lord. And then number four, officially state your forgiveness of the offender. Something to this effect, as a sinner myself who has been forgiven of far worse sins against you, I forgive this person 
for what they have done. I will bear their debt and will absorb in my own person the retaliation that they deserve from me. I send away the sin out from between me and them, out from the center of my focus. I send away this person from the prison cell of consequences I would love to visit upon them. That's what I would commend to you uh, in terms of officially forgiving people in the context of prayer. Well, going to session four's notes on page 19, letter E, when we forgive, we should choose to forgive others as a sacrificial offering of ourselves to God. It's interesting, Paul in Ephesians says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And now he turns our focus on that. And he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you realize that at the foot of the cross, you don't just witness a man dying, You witness a man worshiping. He's offering himself to God as a sacrifice of fragrant aroma to the Father. God loves the fragrant aroma of forgiveness. He just does. And if you come to God and say, God, I just just, want to worship you today. What, What sacrifice of worship can I bring to you today God would say, bring me the sacrifice of forgiveness of your dying self, experiencing the dying of forgiveness. That is a sweet-smelling savor of worship to me. This is helpful for us to know because we just need to remember God is in this equation. There's a person who sinned against you, and then there's you, and then there's God. And God says to you, I want you to forgive this person. And it's helpful to see God in the picture because in that moment, we're looking at that person who sinned against us and we don't especially like them in this moment, do we? And so, yes, we're forgiving them for them. And yes, we're forgiving them for our own sake also, as we've seen. But even if I'm not especially liking that person right now, I look into the eyes of God and he says, I want you to forgive them. And it's like, you know what? I like, I love you, God. And if this is what you're telling me to do, and if this will please you, then I will lay myself out and experience the crucifixion of forgiveness. And in the process, I know that I will bring pleasure to your heart. So when you forgive, forgive as an act of worship to him. Letter F, when we forgive, we should choose to forgive persistently. Literally, in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be continuously forgiving each other. Um, So it's persistent. It's continuous. We saw last night where Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. When you look at Peter's question, technically he's asking two questions. Question number one, how often shall my brother sin against me? And then number two, and how often shall I forgive him? And Jesus says, Peter thinks he's being generous seven times. Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. 
So we forgive persistently. True forgiveness is basically granting forgiveness to someone and saying, Lord, I forgive them for what they've done and I stand ready to forgive them 489 more times if necessary. That's what we're called to. And your response should be, that's impossible, that's ridiculous, and that's crazy. That's just crazy. Um, And you know what? It is. It is. You need to know, because of the grace that we are the recipients of, and, you know, the cross uh, and the message of the gospel, Paul says to people, is moronic foolishness. They view it as crazy. You are the recipient of a crazy salvation. You do what you've done and you actually are complicit in the death of the Son of God and at the very spot where you committed your worst deed, God moves towards you and embraces you and he forgives you. That's not crazy to you. That's amazing. And it should be amazing to us every day. We are the recipients of this salvation And therefore, Jesus says, I want you to live this ethic out. We all should be such forgiving people that worldlings look at us and say, you're insane. If you're not a forgiving person to such a degree that non-believers look at you and say you're crazy, then you may not be forgiving enough. Jesus does not just call us to forgive. He calls us to go crazy with forgiveness. And that's why Jesus immediately moves into the story of the man who was forgiven of the $7.5 billion debt, who then refused to forgive the $17,000 debt. When you see it in that context, you then realize it's crazy not to forgive, given the magnitude of the debt that we have been forgiven. So be persistent in your forgiveness. And don't ever give off the vibe, you know what, I'm going to forgive you for this, but this is it. This is it. You mess up one more time and you, I'm not going to forgive you. Most of us would never say that, but we give off that vibe. We're fed up. We're tired of forgiving. And yet, think of not only the grace God showed us at the cross, but even our lives every day. We're all failing every day, needing, standing in need of God's forgiveness that is just always coming to us in wave after wave after wave. God persistently is forgiving us. And now we have a chance to go just as crazy in forgiving others being the forgiven sinners that we are. Regarding this issue of persistence, there's questions that, that I, I get from time to time. Here's one common question. Someone says, I forgave a person of their sin against me, and then five minutes later I found myself angry again. So I guess this forgiveness thing isn't working. What do I do now? If someone says that to me, I, was, I forgave, and then five minutes later I was angry again, So I don't think forgiveness is working. My response is, it is working. It worked for five whole minutes. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Five minutes that you were free of anger and bitterness. And now that you're angry again, you have a chance to forgive again. If the essence of forgiveness is sending away the sin out from between you and the other person and releasing that person from the prison cell of consequences... Uh, of their sin, then any time that sin comes between you and them, or they're in that prison cell of consequence, 
you need to forgive and forgive again, however often that is needful. Another question tied to this is I forgave someone of a sin against me, but now I find myself angry again. Does that mean that I never really, truly forgave them in the first place? Was my previous forgiveness just a sham? Oh, the devil's good at this, right? You forgive someone and, and you know, a week later you're angry again and the devil's like, look at you, you're such a mess. The fact that you're angry right now indicates that your forgiveness all along was never genuine. It was just a sham. Sometimes the person you find yourself angry about are angry at, they're looking at you saying, you never forgave me. You told me a week ago you forgave me and now you're angry again. You never forgave me. And sometimes people on the receiving end of a lecture like that come to me and say, tell me about this. I mean, did I genuinely forgive them or not? Let me give you three replies to this question. Uh, A, it might mean that your forgiveness wasn't genuine. So be open to that possibility and examine your heart. But, letter B, it doesn't necessarily mean that your forgiveness was insincere. It may have been totally sincere. It may simply mean that you changed your mind. And we do that, right? We do the right thing. We make the right choices. And then, because of our fallenness, we change our minds. And when we change our minds, that doesn't invalidate the integrity of that genuine thing that we did earlier, Jesus would say, hey, come back to what you did earlier. Just like he said to the Ephesian church, you've left your first love. And he doesn't say you left your first love and that means we never really had anything genuine in the first place. He's like, no, 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 what we had was good and genuine and you left it. And I'm asking you to remember where you fell from. I remember, I remember what we had. Please remember what I remember. Remember where you fell from and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Those were good things you were doing. I remember them. I want you to get back to doing them. I love the grace of Jesus to the Ephesian church. Rather than saying to them, you left your first love, which means we never had anything between us in the first place. He doesn't do that. We had something and it was genuine. Remember it because I remember it and get back and be doing the genuine things you were doing before. The same with forgiveness. Sometimes we genuinely forgive and then we change our minds. Um, But letter C, consider that some sins committed against you are multifaceted in their execution, in other words, the way they were carried out, and in their consequence, thus requiring multiple moments of forgiveness. Think about it this way. When Jesus tells us to forgive 490 times, he's not simply telling us that we need to forgive 490 separate individual sins one time each. He's also saying that sometimes we will find ourselves needing to forgive one sin 490 times. A sin with 490 facets will eventually require 490 moments of forgiveness. Does that make sense? Um, Imagine that um, I'm stuck on the $5,000 number for some reason. Um, Imagine you do work for someone and they owe you $5,000, but they end up not paying you. Um, And that's a wrong on their part. 
Um, and so let's say you forgive them for that. Um, but then after forgiving them, you know, you're, you're in a place of liberty, you're absorbing the debt, and you're moving on with your life, rejoicing in the Lord. But you come to church one Sunday, and you see this person who owed you 5000 whose debt you forgave, he comes driving into the church with a brand new car, 2014, okay? And you observe that, and what's going to happen? You're going to feel anger in your heart. Why? Because you never forgave genuinely in the first place? No, this is kind of a new facet of the sin because now you're realizing they could have paid me, but they've chosen not to, and they've spent their money on this. That's a facet of their sin uh, that you're now being confronted with, and now it's time to confront and forgive for that facet. Let's say later that week, uh, your children come to you and said, Dad, remember that vacation you were promising us? Uh, we were going to go to such and such a place and do this and that and the other. And you're like, that's right. I had promised them that. And the reason I did is because I was counting on this $5,000 coming in. But it's not coming in. And you tell your children, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to go. Uh, we don't have the money for that. And as you look into the disappointed faces of your children you find your heart welling up with anger. Why? Because you never forgave? No, you did. But staring into the faces of your children, you're now being confronted by a brand new facet of the consequence of that person's sin. And now that you're confronted with that new facet, you need to forgive for that facet. Think of a disco ball um, suspended from a ceiling that has hundreds of facets and it just spins slowly and there's light shining on it and as that sphere spins different facets will sparkle as the light is reflected that's the way sin is often that's committed against you it's a whole disco ball of facets in terms of its execution and also its consequence and so when you forgive, a lot of times you're forgiving someone for something, but you're not even understanding half of all of those facets. But you forgive to the degree that you're aware, but then in the days to come, the light hits different facets, and you find yourself welling up with anger, and that's the time to identify that facet and go before the Lord again and forgive for that facet and to work your way over time around that disco ball of the person's sin. In connection with that, uh, number two here, and in my mind, just from my counseling experience, the ultimate multifaceted sin is the sin of adultery. That's the quintessential, consummate, multifaceted sin. Uh, when, for example, a husband has committed adultery, there's just so it's not just one act. There are so many acts involved in that sin and layers of deception uh, and wrongs that have been committed. And when a wife first is made aware of the husband's adultery, for example, she, she in that moment doesn't even understand 97% of the magnitude of all that she's even supposed to forgive. What I found is God very mercifully protects a wife in that situation from actually seeing and feeling the full weight of it. 
but she may see and comprehend 3% of those facets and be able to forgive. But there's a long road ahead of the light shining on hundreds of facets. And it's going to be that wife's calling to confront each of those facets and forgive as she works her way around that disco ball of her husband's sin. I remember years ago, uh, a man in our church uh, committed adultery with a co-worker and God brought him to a place of repentance and he, he was in my office with his wife and, and he had already informed her and she just blew me away. She was in this amazing place of grace and she was crying. She says, I've never been more hurt in my life, but Pastor Milton, I forgive my husband. And I'm like, you don't feel any anger at all right now? She's like, no. And I could tell God's spirit was on her and giving her grace toward her husband. And there genuinely was no anger there. But I could also tell that she was in shock. Uh, but she, it was genuine. She's, I forgive my husband. And, and I told her what I'm telling you. And I said, listen, there's, there's a road ahead. And you're going to find yourself experiencing moments of anger And she's like, I don't know about that. I just know that I forgive my husband. I said, well, call me when those moments come and we'll all meet together. And she said, okay. Uh, But like two weeks later, it was her birthday. And things were going great between her and her husband. He was so repentant and she was giving him grace. Their relationship, it seemed like had never been better. Her birthday arrived two weeks later and... The husband was on his way home from work. His heart was filled with love for his wife, and he decided to stop by the florist and get her a dozen red roses. And so he does, and he comes in the house, and he gives her the roses and says, I love you, honey, and, and I praise God for you. She receives the roses, and she's just looking at the roses and smiling and taking it all in. And then something pierced her consciousness. Looking at the roses, she thought to herself, wait a minute. He gave me a dozen red roses last year for my birthday. And the affair was going on on my birthday last year. So the roses last year meant nothing. And so how dare he give me roses for my birthday this year? And that thought hit her like a thunderbolt and it touched off an explosion inside of her that was utterly startling to her husband and to her she threw the roses at her husband and began screaming at him in a rage and it all started coming out this this woman called me up crying a couple hours later because she felt bad for being so angry. And she was saying, I thought I had forgiven my husband. And I was able to comfort her with the thought that you did forgive your husband. But what just happened today is the light has shined on a brand new facet of his sin that you've not seen before. And now you need to forgive for this facet of his sin. This husband, to his credit, didn't get on our case and say, you told me you forgave me and now look at you. 
No, he took it on the chin and viewed it as an opportunity for him to go deeper in his education of the magnitude of his sin. That's what I always challenge the offending spouse to do in these situations. You need to go through an education. You don't even understand 97% of all that you've done. And, and your spouse is going to help you understand that. And you need to receive all that lies ahead. These moments of frustration and anger, that's the school you need to be attending to understand the magnitude of your sin. And if you let yourself be schooled in this way, it'll prevent you from ever doing this again. So just understand that there are sins like adultery, and it's not limited to that. There are many sins people commit against you that contain many facets in terms of the execution and the consequences of those sins. And just be prepared. Sometimes it may be one sin someone's committed against you, but you're going to have to forgive that sin hundreds of times. Uh, I, one sister in the Lord, her husband was unfaithful to her, she uh, was so angry and so uh, frustrated over what he had done, uh, but she wanted to fight the fight and to be forgiving. This woman wrote out verses on a three-by-five card, several three-by-five cards, and whenever she'd find herself getting angry, she would quote those verses, even when she's driving in her car, and then she'd forgive her husband. And then five minutes later, she finds anger boiling up within her again. She'd quote those verses and re-forgive her husband. And for about two weeks, like she was forgiving him day and night, almost every five minutes. And then it got to where the anger would surface a couple times an hour, and she fought that fight. And years later, maybe the anger surfaces once or twice a year when something happens that reminds her and she has to re-forgive. But when I look at that sister, I see a champion who fought the fight. And she had to forgive her husband thousands of times. And she was willing to do that for her husband and for herself And just think of what an amazing sacrificial offering of fragrant aroma she was to God during that season. Forgive and forgive persistently. Step three of forgiveness is to pray. So I've officially forgiven in the context of prayer. And then we say to God, all right, so I'm done, right? You're like, no, you're not done. Uh, Pray for that person you just forgave. Pray for the person who has wronged you. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the category of all those who wrong you, persecutors are the most severe in that category. That word persecute means to pursue. This is the people who intentionally hurt you. We all have many people in our lives that unwittingly are thoughtless and they wound us in various ways uh, through neglect or what have you. But then there are the persecutors in our life who willfully pursue us and they hurt us and they feel justified and righteous in doing so. It's the worst people in that category of those who wound us in our lives. And so Jesus goes to the farthest extreme of all those who wrong us, and he says, regarding those, I want you to pray for them. 
And if Jesus reaches the farthest extreme and says to pray for them, that then therefore includes everybody in the category that wrongs us to an even lesser extent. Pray for those who wrong you, Jesus says, all the way to the extent of those who intentionally hurt you and feel justified and righteous in doing so. Pray for them so that you may be sons of your Father. In other words, that you may be like Him who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, those who wrong you, I want you to pray for them. And just to give you a heads up, the God you're going to be praying to is a God who delights to lavish undeserved blessings on people, whether they're righteous or unrighteous. He gives sunshine to the unrighteous, rain to the unrighteous. It'd be nice if we lived in a world where you could just tell who the righteous and the unrighteous are, right? Uh, And the unrighteous, you know, rain is falling everywhere except on the farmland of the unrighteous person. And you can point out to your kids, you see how the rain stops right there, the edge of the property? That's because that's an unrighteous person who does not love Jesus, who owns that property. And, you know, the sun shines, but then there's these blocks of darkness that just kind of are over every single person who's unrighteous. And you can just see that and go, yeah, that's an unrighteous person. I mean, if we were God, that's kind of how we would structure life in this world, right? But God isn't that way. God is so gracious, so generous that he lavishes all of these blessings, the gift of oxygen to breathe and sunshine and rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus says, and that's the God you're praying to. So if you ask God, here's the deal, pray for those who wrong you and ask God to do real and practical good to them in some way, showing them his kindness, his grace, and his blessing. And the likelihood, Jesus says, is God is so gracious and generous that he's going to answer that prayer. So I challenge you, when you forgive someone, start praying for that person and just think of even just some practical blessing. Just start praying that for them. Lord, just bless this person. Bless them in their job. Bless them in their home. Think of specifics and start being their advocate in the presence of God as you lift them up in prayer. And among the things to pray for, the greatest blessing that you could ever pray for is not sunshine and rain, but that they would come to experience God's forgiveness. Jesus, when he was on the cross, look at this in Luke 23, 34, but Jesus was saying, that verb saying is present tense, so he didn't just say this once. He kept on saying. You would have heard him say this several times from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is saying, Father, I'm praying that you will so work in the lives of these people crucifying me that you will bring them to a place of forgiveness that they might come to personally taste of your forgiveness. Jesus is saying, I forgive them. Father, I'm praying you'll bring them to a place that they will come to know your forgiveness. And you know what? Shortly after this, the day of Pentecost arrived, and some of these very people are among the 3,000 who were assembled. And Peter says, you crucified 
God's approved Messiah. And they were pierced to the heart, experiencing repentance and said, what shall we do? And Peter gives them the gospel basically and tells them to believe in Jesus. And they did. And their lives were forever changed. And this prayer of Jesus was answered in the lives of those particular individuals. He prayed the ultimate blessing for those who were crucifying him. And so when you forgive somebody, don't stop with that forgiveness. Begin to pray for that person. I dare you to begin to pray for that person. And when I say pray for them, I'm not talking about imprecatory prayers. Pray for God to do real and practical good to them. And then the fourth step of forgiveness is make yourself an agent of blessing in that person's life. Make yourself an agent of blessing in that person's life. This is actually the step that brings victory. This is the clincher. This is the step that closes the deal. This is the step that makes your forgiveness secure and locks it up tightly. Uh, If you forgive someone but don't do this step, you're leaving your forgiveness vulnerable to attack and to be undone. Seriously, it's the equivalent of me going out and buying a $2 million painting, bringing it into my home, putting it on my wall, and then leaving every window and door in my house open and going away for a month-long vacation. That is just, that's insanity. And that's what we do when we forgive somebody but then we don't follow through and close the deal and lock that in by doing real and practical good to the person that we have uh, forgiven. This is a critical step. Uh, In Romans 12, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And I want to encourage you to underline both of those words, evil. Underline both of them. We'll come back to this in just a second. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. So there's two evils here. There's the evil they've done. And then there is in your heart the evil that you want to do. Okay? And he says, don't do that. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, you be feeding him, literally. And if he is thirsty, you be giving him a drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That person who has wronged you, Paul says, look at that person. What needs does that person have in his life? I'll give you just two examples. If he's hungry, you be the one who's feeding him. And if he's thirsty, you be the one who is giving him something to drink. So, Uh, It'll make you think twice when you go to God and start praying for that person who's wronged you because the likelihood is God's going to say, you know what, actually, I would really like to do real and practical good to this person that wronged you that you're praying for. And we're like, that's great, Lord. Who are you going to send? And he says, well, I want to send you. And you say, but that's what my brothers and sisters in the Lord are for. Send them. And he's like, no, I want to send you. 
I want you to be an agent of my blessing in the life of that person. And guys, when we say, here am I, Lord, send me, I will do this, there is so much power in showing kindness to those who've wronged us in some tangible way. It's powerful to the person. Uh, Paul says, in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We don't have time to unpack all the specifics of what that means. I'll just say this. If I put burning coals on your head today, I researched this months ago, like burning coals can get up to 1,000 to 1,800 degrees. So if, based on my research, if I, like today, took burning coals and put it on your head, that'd be a powerful experience. It would be, it would be an unforgettable moment between the two of us that you would remember for the rest of your life, right? So understand, guys, that kindness is powerful. And we need to remember this because when someone wrongs us, we, we start fantasizing about all the really powerful things we can do, the evil that we can do, the retaliation. I mean, there have been times I'm, I'm taking a shower and I'm rehearsing speeches that I just want to deliver to people, and I just imagine delivering that speech to someone who's wronged me, and they just fall at my feet in repentance. You are so right, Milton, and I am so wrong. Your words have just cut me to the quick, right? You just imagine yourself retaliating and lashing out at someone. And all of those things that we fantasize about and want to do, we're like, oh, I'd love to do that. That'd be so powerful. I'd be so powerful. But I can't do that. So what can I do? And then the Lord points to kindness. And we're like, oh, yeah, I got to do that. That... And in our minds, that's so lame. Kindness is so lame. I would rather do the powerful thing, but instead, I just have to be kind. And Paul says, no, no, no. This kindness that God calls you to is over a thousand degrees. It's hugely powerful. John Calvin says, kindness is as effectual as coals of fire It's not the lame thing that you're reduced to doing, and it's the only thing you're allowed to do. It's the most powerful thing that you can do toward those who wrong you. In fact, the evil that you want to do to retaliate and lash out, that's weak sauce. You give them the ultimate victory. If someone yells at you and you yell back, congratulations, you just lost, and you just allowed them to make you just like them. How is that a victory for you? You've just made them your master and let them dictate what your behavior is in this moment rather than Christ your Lord dictating your behavior. That is weak sauce. The powerful thing is to do kindness to the person who has wronged you. I believe this fourth step is so critical that it's, it's the true measure of whether you truly forgave. I remember I was doing premarital counseling with a couple, uh, and it was very evident this gal was bitter against her mom and dad, exceptionally bitter gal. It's the only time I've done premarital with a couple, and I told them, I told the guy, do not marry her. Don't marry her. He did marry her. 
And within a week, he had already spent his last night in her bedroom. He was a lonely man, and a week into their marriage, he was as lonely as he was as a single man. And it was bitterness that was destroying this woman and destroyed their marriage. But this woman was bitter against her parents, and I said, have you, you know, have you forgiven them? She's like, oh, yeah, I've forgiven them. And I was like, okay, let's uh, talk about some specific tangible blessing you can render to them. And she was like, I'm not going to do that. And, as I, and I just said, that's how I know that you haven't forgiven. This is a measure of whether we've truly forgiven. Are you able to do real and practical kindness to them? And guys, when we talk about doing kindness to those who've wronged you and how powerful that is, understand that that's, you know, Paul says in verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In verse 21, when he says, don't let yourself be overcome by evil, remember, there's two evils he's talking about. He's saying, don't be overcome by the evil that they have done against you. But he's also saying, don't be overcome by the evil that is in your heart that you wish to visit upon them. Don't be overcome by either evil, but you overcome both of those evils with good. You overcome their evil and you overcome the evil in your own heart by doing good to them. I'm telling you guys, this this works. This works. I remember... um, Years ago, uh, there was a man in our church exceptionally bitter um, against me. I was called uh, out one weeknight to do some marriage counseling with this man and woman. And so I'm sitting in their living room counseling them. And, and uh, I said something, and this guy got up and cussed at me and walked out of his own house. It's the only time anyone's walked out of their own house on me. So... I just helped myself to the refrigerator and uh, <laughs> not really, but I'm, I'm sitting there awkwardly with his wife in their living room like, well, um, you know, I prayed with her and then I walk out of the house and this guy was standing beside his driveway uh, with another guy who was living in one of the rooms of their house and I was, I was filled with rage. I'm like, this guy called me out of my house. Uh, took me away from my family. I'm trying to help them. He's cussing at me and walking out on me. I, I was very unhappy with that, fuming with rage. But as I'm walking out of the house and I see him, I'm like, Lord, just give me a spirit of calm. And I very calmly said, when you're ready to meet again, just let me know and, and I'll be right over. And I, I was so disconnected from my anger that I felt like I was in the twilight zone. Like I'm hearing these words come out of my mouth, but it's like, that is so not the guy who's inside this body right now. So I get in my car and I back out of the driveway and I knew this guy's going to watch me for any sign of anger. So I very, in slow motion, backed out the driveway and onto the street, put it in drive, very slowly drove off until I was out of sight. And then I breathed this huge sigh of relief. Well, over the next two or three weeks, I'm hearing second and third hand from people that I came out of the house in a rage, in a huff, and said some things to him uh, out of anger, and then I squealed out of the driveway and down the street. So the anger I had toward this guy now just got multiplied. 
And I was, I was finding my, there were many evils in my heart. I hated this guy. I wanted to strangle him because of um, the way that he was acting. And, and I like saying, Lord, I forgive him. I forgive him. I was doing the forgiveness thing, but it never got locked in. Um, and I would find myself repeatedly getting angry again. And so in that frustration, like a week or two later, I'm driving down the freeway, and this passage comes to mind. If your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And I knew the Lord was telling me, you need to do real and practical kindness to this man. And I resisted, but eventually, you guys know you can't argue with God because he always wins. And so I, I couldn't think of anything this guy needed, but I thought of something he would like, and it was a book. So two days later, when I was at a bookstore, I, I got the book that I knew that he would like, and I was standing in line. I hadn't even purchased the book yet. And as I was standing in line, waiting to purchase the book, I noticed that all of my anger and my hate was gone, and my heart was overflowing with love for this guy. I bought the book when I saw him the next Sunday at church. I just walked up to him and I just said, hey, I thought about you this week and wanted to get you this book. He didn't fall on the floor and say, oh, you're so righteous and I'm so unrighteous. I repent. <laughs> he, just, he just said, thank you. That's all he said. And, and I, I walked away. And you know what? I didn't need him to say or do anything to make me feel okay I was already eating a delicious cake of victory. And what I learned from that experience as a young pastor is that, man, I did this to overcome this man's evil. But in the doing of it, it actually overcame the evil in my heart. That was surprising to me. But Paul actually is telling us this. Don't retaliate with evil that's in your heart for evil that they have done, but instead do kindness and thereby overcome evil, both evils, the evil they have done and the evil that is in your own heart. Let me throw this at you and we'll shut this down. Letter C, be willing to render kindness anonymously. There are some situations that are so sticky that you may deem it best that they not even know that it came from you uh, there have been times in my ministry where I, it just felt right to do this, just to overcome the evil in my own heart, to just go buy a $25 gift card and put it in a card anonymously and just say from someone in the church body who cares about you, and I hope whoever in my church has received a gift card from me is not listening to this, uh, a recording of this, but, um, but, you know, just taking that step, uh, if I find myself repeatedly getting angry, uh, even though I think I have forgiven, I'll always take a step like this to lock it in and seal the deal. And when I do that, um, I always find that it overcomes the evil that's in uh, my own heart. So even if it's anonymously, in order to lock in the victory in your own heart, uh, consider that as, as a possibility. Um, you see here at the end of the notes a practical question regarding the relationship between forgiveness and trust. Let me just fill in these blanks for you. Uh, but there's a whole sermon on this 
um, on our church's website. What is the relationship between forgiveness and trust? Does forgiveness equal trust? Answer, fill in the blank, no, N-O. In fact, trust prematurely granted is an unloving thing to do. It's unloving. Uh, Number two, the answer is yes, though, in the sense that forgiveness and trust do have a relationship with one another. Forgiveness means that you give the offender the opportunity to re-earn your trust, which does require making yourself vulnerable to them on some level. So if someone sins against you, like a husband commits adultery, the wife, it would be actually unloving for her to just say, you know, I totally trust my husband. No, that's to give him too much trust is unloving. So forgiveness does not equal trust, but forgiveness does say, I'm willing to begin to lean in your direction and over time give you the opportunity to re-earn my trust. Now for that to happen... You have to be willing for your trust to extend a little bit beyond what they've earned and give them an opportunity to live up to that trust and let that trust grow over time. We are able to do this because, number four, this is the way God treats us in Christ. God has done this. Uh, God has, in fact, he calls us trustworthy ones. In Ephesians 1.1 and Colossians 1.2, he leans towards us. Even though we grieve him, the Holy Spirit, every day, uh, God has made himself vulnerable to a relationship with us where we, we do cause grief to the heart of God through our failures and sins. But you don't ever, if you say to someone, I forgive you, but I will never, ever trust you to any degree in any way, shape, or form again, I think you're falling short of forgiveness. But you can say to someone, I forgive you, and right now I don't trust you, and I don't think it's even right for me to trust you, but because I forgive you, I'm willing over time to give you a chance to re-earn my trust. And there will be some vulnerabilities I'm going to have to experience in that process, but I'm willing to go on that journey of allowing you to re-earn my trust And I would encourage you guys, there's so much to say about this. Listen to the whole message. I'm probably raising more questions than I'm answering here. But the alternative to to giving someone the chance to re-earn your trust is an unbreakable and unredeemable heart. Uh, Guys, you can't live your life protecting yourself from ever being wounded. Uh, That's actually not the life you really want. I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is by its very nature to be vulnerable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So let me pray for all of us and ask God to help us to 
live these things out. Lord, I just thank you for these brothers and sisters. What a thrill it is to be with them this weekend, to get to know some of them, to see their hearts, their love for your word. Their presence here says so much about them, Lord. I pray that you would honor their desire to to live and walk in freedom and victory and to bring great help to others to do the same. I know there's a lot of pain represented in this room. We all in this broken world experience so many wrongs and some of them go very deep and very far back and some of them are recent and fresh and vivid. I pray, God, that you would help us to walk in forgiveness, to live out the ethic that we've been talking about these four sessions and experience the resurrection life the vitality, the freedom that comes from walking in this way and help us to help others in this same journey. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. God bless you all.